Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audio books. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of titles to choose from in a wide variety of genres, and you can play them on just about any digital listening device that you can hold in your hand, whether it's an iPhone, a Kindle, an Android, etc. And here's the deal. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. Go get The Voice Is All, The Lonely Victory of Jack Kerouac, the new biography by today's guest, Joyce Johnson. And while you're at it, get yourself a Jack Kerouac novel. Just about any book at Audible can be yours free of charge. And if you do this, if you go get the freebie, it helps the program. I get a few nickels. That is pleasant. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a terrific deal. It is available right this moment. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is two human beings having a word with one another. This is you having a word with yourself. Thanks for being here. My name is Brad Listy, and I'm in Los Angeles. Uh, what is happening? Doubt is happening here. Uh, doubt has been on my mind uh, this week, the past couple of days, uh, self-doubt or, or some form of it. And, you know, it's not a negative thing that I'm referring to here. It's actually a positive thing, uh, I think, this form of self-doubt. So often, uh, I think when we, when we talk about this, when we talk about doubting ourselves, it's considered negative. People tell you not to do it. Like, don't doubt yourself, have confidence in, in you know, yourself and so on. But uh, this week... I've been thinking about my own thinking. I've been thinking about what I think about. And uh, in particular, I've been considering how certain I can often feel about my own perceptions. Like my beliefs about people and things and situations and phenomena. Uh, but especially people. You know how it is. The judgments that you make. 
in your own brain and how harsh they can sometimes be or how sweeping and seemingly permanent, how damning, damning. So, you know, in this particular context, it occurs to me that I would be well served by doubting more often. And I should mention that I got into this train of thought as I was reading uh, The Voice is All, the Kerouac biogra- uh, biography by today's guest, Joyce Johnson. Uh, this is something that Jack Kerouac wrote. Uh, I believe he wrote it in a letter to a friend, or else he said it. But I think he wrote it, uh, and he encouraged this friend of his to doubt his own mind more often, to doubt his judgments. And I, I sort of it sort of stuck to me. Because, you know, we're all people at the end of the day, and our perceptions tend to be flawed. Uh, we're all confused. And uh, the things that people do uh, or don't do, it, you know, it's... It, It's complex. It's rarely simple. And I think that much of the time, the things that we think we know definitively, we probably don't really know all that well at all. I don't know if I just said that right. So that's where my head has been. And, uh, you know, the other day, uh, just like, you know, 48 hours ago in a fit of enthusiasm with this new approach, I told myself that I should be more scientifically detached more Zen about what goes on in my brain. And I told myself that from now on I should doubt every single thought that goes through my head, reserving judgment. But then, you know, as I, as I pondered this a little bit more, uh, you know, and as, as logic would seem to uh, indicate, I told myself uh, that I should doubt my decision to doubt everything. Like if you're going to doubt your thoughts and you're really going to follow through then uh, shouldn't you doubt the preceding thought about wanting to doubt everything? Like, is that really a good idea? Should I be doubting? Uh, you know, what I'm saying is that I got into a spiral. And then it started to get confusing again. This is what I do. I haven't sorted it all out yet, obviously, but uh, I want you to know that I'm working on it. So a big show for you today. It's another double feature, and uh, there's a lot to get to. I want to start with Joshua Moore. Uh, He's been a guest on this program before, I believe it was last year. He's got a new novel out. It is called Fight Song, and it is the February selection of the TNB Book Club, the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, and uh, thenervousbreakdown.com is, of course, my online culture magazine and literary community. If you're not familiar with it and you're not familiar with the book club, it's a a wonderful deal, and you should join. uh, For only $9.99 a month, you get a brand new book delivered to your door, Every 30 days, uh, the titles are hand-selected by uh, me and by Jonathan Evison. And better yet, all of the book club authors uh, appear on this program. So you can read the book, and then you can hear me talk to the person who wrote the book. And again, it's only $9.99 a month. That's less than the cost of a book. And uh, that's less than the cost of a movie ticket in most cities. And in some places, it's less than the cost of an alcoholic beverage. So it's an authentically good deal. Uh, and if you want to sign up, just go to the nervousbreakdown.com and click on book club in the menu bar. You can pay uh, safely and securely with PayPal or with uh, any major credit card. It's very easy. And I should add that it helps me keep this show in operation. So if you're interested, if you want a new book every 30 days for less than the cost of a book, please go do that and join the club. 
Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So uh, let's get on with the first part of the show, my conversation with Joshua Moore, a fine gentleman and a fine writer, and his new novel, once again, is called Fight Song. And it is available now from Soft Skull Press. This is Joshua Moore, and I'm coming to you live from the Mission District of San Francisco. It is a beautiful, sunny afternoon, and I'm doing the dishes with one shoe on for some reason. I don't know why that happened. You only have one shoe on? I only have one shoe on. I was like, I was kind of getting dressed, and then I felt like I had to do some obligatory things, and... Here I stand. Here you stand. What kind of shoe is it? Do you? I mean, just is it a basic tennis shoe, or is it some sort of elaborate boot? Or it is. It, it would be even weirder if it was a cowboy boot. But this is just like a low top Chuck Taylor with an argyle sock on the other foot. Okay. Okay. Um, and uh, congratulations on the book. I should start there at least. You know, this is number four, right? This is number four, yeah. It's like way uh, uncharted territory for me, so I'm really looking forward to seeing what, what people are seeing in this script. Well, okay, because I, mean, I think we actually touched upon this last time because you were in process on Fight Song when we talked, um, I believe, in the, on the Damascus uh, publicity cycle, and you said that this was a, a departure for you. It was like more of like a, um, I don't know, there was more sunshine maybe in this one than there were in past books. Like, is that? Well, I think you know the with the, with the bar trilogy is kind of just dealing with like addicts and weird artists, um, and with this one, I wanted to try. I set out to write a black comedy, um, and then kind of the question that launched the whole thing was, what would happen if I tried to tell the Wizard of Oz set in a 21st century American suburb? Um, and that was kind of my point of entry, and I just had a blast putting this book together. It was really fun. And then what about, like, the suburbs? I mean, is, it, is this something that you have? Because you live in San Francisco, you know what I'm saying? You live in this urban environment. But were you raised in suburbs? Did you have some kind of, like, quintessential American suburban childhood or something that gave you entree to this world? God, I hope that my childhood is not the quintessential American one. <laughs> um, but I, I did, after kind of some, like, rocky years in Arizona, I, I did spend... Uh, my junior high and high school out in a, a Bay Area suburb. Uh, so I have some firsthand experience then. Um, and, I, and I've lived in San Francisco for about 18 years, so I, you know, I felt it was, to do my due diligence, I went on some, like, research projects and went to some, like, atrocious suburbs right around here, um, a couple in the East Bay, a couple in the South Bay. Um, and then I, you know, I took some photos and some notes, and then I 
went home and built kind of my perfect nightmarish suburb. I was going to say, like, it would be almost great if, like, you wrote the entire novel. You should maybe try to uh, build this into the mythology of the book that you wrote the entire thing in an Applebee's or something. You know, like, that was your cat. I know, right? <laughs> I had, like, a, I was wearing, like, shorts and Jerry Seinfeld sneakers and had a fanny pack on. <laughs> you, went to, you went, like, totally in character, you know. <laughs> I mean, you have to. You just have to embrace it. So I shaved a bald spot on the back of my head. It was, it was perfect. <laughs> so uh, do you find... I mean, it seems like people who uh, publish as as uh, well and as frequently as you do, um, you don't get too hung up on the psychological or emotional mechanics of the publication process and the review process. But do you have, uh, as each subsequent book comes out, do you find yourself getting better at dealing with this part of it, like the nerves and the wondering about the reviews and what will sales do? Like, how do you manage all that? And like, has it gotten any easier? It, it has definitely gotten easier. And one of the ways that I manage it is I'm, I'm always deep into the next project when one is kind of hitting the shelves. Uh, so I can always like take sanctuary and kind of, and can always find solace in the creative process because that's really what I like. I mean, sure, I like to read a, a positive book review. I mean, everybody likes you know to have their ego stroked a little bit. But the reason that I like to write books are like the micro pleasures. I write because Writing makes my Thursday better. Writing makes my Sunday better. Writing makes my Monday better. Um, and if I can really kind of like entomb myself in kind of that part of the writing identity, that's really what I do this for. So how does it make it better? You know what I'm saying? Like, how does it make your Sunday better? Can you can you drill down into that some more? Oh, I can absolutely. I mean, I'm, a, I'm kind of a rabid insomniac, so you know, my day sort of ends and begins with writing. So it's kind of like the last flavor in my mouth as I kind of like, quote unquote, shut down. Um, and then oftentimes, you know, I, don't, I haven't really slept and it's six or seven in the morning, um, you know, and I have to kind of brew some coffee and get going on my teaching responsibilities. And I really find that if I've had time in my kind of imaginative ecosystem, if I've had time to kind of play with my imaginary friends, that makes the rest of my status quo make a lot more sense. Uh, because, you know, what I'm typically preoccupied with on the page is the same kind of preoccupations that I have in my everyday life. Um, so they really kind of balance each other, and I think they really bounce off of one another and hopefully inform each other in a way that I'm going to make kind of better decisions in my in my own day-to-day life. And then what about, like, do you, do you ever sit there and say, you know, I'm all... I might be all tapped out. Like, do you ever find yourself wondering if you're going to run out of material? Or do you, like, how do you keep yourself uh, like heavily invested in the next thing? Do you know what I'm saying? Do you, do you have like a method or do you have an approach to it that um, feels concrete? Well, if it, well, what has worked for me so far creatively is that I'm always working on two books at once. Um, there's, there's one like way later in the drafting process, which I find exercises a very different part of my psyche versus something that's very nascent, you know, something where I'm just kind of like writing those initial gusts of imagination, and I really have no idea what the fuck the book is going to turn into yet. I'm just kind of experimenting and embracing kind of the trial and error of it all. I mean, so far I haven't had any sort of writer's block. I would imagine that 
if you're lucky enough to have a long career, um, that's going to be something that you have to deal with eventually. Uh, but so far, I've, I've got enough ideas in the queue to keep me busy for a few years. Sure. And then uh, in the intervening uh, months since we last spoke, you have, uh, you have gotten married. So congratulations on Yeah, I got married in uh in August. Yeah, thanks very much. It was really it was really super fun. It was a very small wedding. There was only about thirty of us there. Uh but I gotta tell you, Brad, I like I bawled like a baby the whole entire time. Like as soon as I saw her turn the corner in that dress, I was just done for. That was it. I lost it. And then the, and then it was like I thought that was gonna be the worst part and I'd like get my shit together. Um, but then, like, you know, a friend of ours, Bucky Sinister, wrote and read an original poem. Then a friend of ours got up and sang a song. Then the vows. I just kept crying, like, more and more ferociously. <laughs> and by the end of it, I was just like, I had, like, no dignity left whatsoever. It was just one of those things. Maybe that's a metaphor for how it's all going to go down anyways, right? <laughs> I, so might as well start letting go now. Um, but you know, it does, it does bring up interesting, it does bring up an interesting question. Like I'm dealing with this. Uh, I have a kid now too, which adds like another layer, but, um, you know, it's, it's writing is such a solitary pursuit. And I remember it's easy to like idealize those early years when you were single and it was just you and your shitty apartment and you had, uh, you know, a, a lot fewer responsibilities to other people right. and you were able to kind of focus and zero in. Like, how do you find yourself, um, managing the, like that kind of balance. It, has it made it easier? Has it made it harder? Do you find it like more fulfilling to get to write when you have, do you know what I'm saying? Like, how does it all work for you that way? It, it's funny that you mentioned that too. Cause when I, when I think back to writing as a, a single bloke, like I have a very hard time idealizing that sense. Cause I was a drug addict. Oh, right. Um, and I was like, either like pop, pop an oxy or like doing a couple grams of cocaine just to like kind of get myself, to the keyboard at all. Um, so when I think about those times writing, like, those were much more unhappy times. And when I think about the way I write now, what's so cool about it is my wife is an incredibly good and avid sleeper. So, you know, I'll lay down with her about 11 o'clock and, you know, she'll is usually typically out in half an hour, 45 minutes. Then I'll get up and I'll get to work about midnight and I'll write until I have nothing else to say that night. So I actually find that it's it's actually working out better so far. We're expecting a baby in June. Oh, you are. I expect that to completely dismantle my creative output. Uh, I didn't know we'll that. that when we come to it. I had no idea, man. Congratulations. Yeah, so that that will be. I mean, our uncharted waters are about to get a whole lot more uncharterable, if that's not a word. Yeah, no, it's it's really. It's, I mean, it's a huge change. Like. Uh... A friend of mine said uh, one time, and this is like something I always kind of like repeat, but it's like having like the, the difference between having a kid and not having a kid is like uh, pre 9-11 and post 9-11. Just <laughs> sort of a crude, it's a crude way to put it, but it, it's sort of, you know, I find that there's a ring of truth. Well, to it. What's really cracking me up though is everybody who tries to find some sort of analogy or some sort of metaphor, it always has to do with like apocalypse or annihilation. <laughs> well, you know what it is? This is the other thing I always say is that I always like jokingly congratulate friends of mine who are getting ready to have their first kid by saying, welcome to a state of permanent fear. Because like, you know, it's, right. it's, it's so great. I mean, it's a, there's nothing better. And like, I don't think, um, you know, I have a friend who is single He's about my age. He lives a completely different life. We were just talking about this. He was saying 
basically that he has no desire to ever get married and have kids because he gets to do whatever he wants and he likes being single. You know, he, he likes that life. And you know what? Like, it, there's no right way to live your life. There's different roads you can take. So, um, I'm not. Sure. I would never uh, think to judge that. But one thing I will say is that, like, unless you have a kid, uh, as far as I can tell, like I know personally, like. I don't think you can really know, and this is going to sound, I don't want to sound too precious about it, but I don't think you can really know what love is in, until you have a child. Because adult relationships, as, you know, as great as they can be, um, they're always a little bit fraught. Or at least there's a sliver of possibility that they can be fraught or um, breakable. But you know, when you have a kid, if you're you know, semi-well adjusted, that's a pretty unbreakable feeling yeah. i don't think i could replicate that otherwise i don't know maybe people feel differently well i wonder i wonder too that if you're if you're an author who doesn't have kids am i always writing from the perspective of a child even when i'm pretending to be a parent but that'll be it'll be really interesting to see like once i have kids to kind of read back on which i pretended to be a parent when i didn't actually have children and to see if it registered with any sort of like sincerity or you know, earnestness did you? I mean, because yeah, yeah, like you do sort of prepare. I mean, it's something like I mean, you think about from childhood almost, at least in, in, in bursts or in moments, you imagine what it would be like to have kids of your own or if you're ever going to do that, especially people, I think, who are predisposed to do it. Like I've always I always thought of myself as one day having kids. And there are people I know who never thought of themselves as having kids, you know, like uh, right. did you is this something you always thought you were going to do? Or are you surprised to be sitting here waiting for your first? I child? think I think like um like post sobriety, I, I always thought that having a kid would be cool. Um, but when I was still, you know, drinking and drugging, I never wanted to bring somebody into like the kind of chaos that I was raised in. You know, I never wanted to like have somebody that I was like experiencing kind of that set of world. Um, but now they're like, I kind of got my shit together marginally. Um, and I, and I feel the space too, that it, I think it would be really fun and a new kind of, exciting set of adventures to try to tackle well and dude you're already an insomniac so you're like perfect for this <laughs> you know like you don't know yeah. you're already not you're already not sleeping you might as well be rocking a, an infant you know yeah um, it's funny too like i already am, am in like a fugue state like at least 14 hours a day so, so you know what's the difference if i have a little like throw up on my shirt right you know? that's the that's it that's it <laughs> <you know? laughs> um well that's exciting that's really exciting and that's that's coming in june do you know if it's a boy or a girl yeah, we just found out a couple weeks ago. We're having a little girl. You're having a little girl. Oh, see, I, I'm partial. I have a little girl, so that's uh, little girls love their dads. So you're in good shape. And how old? How old is yours? She's like two and a half. Awesome. Yeah. So that's uh, that's very exciting. And uh, you got the fourth book out. You're working on the fifth book. Do we have any like hints on what the next one is? Yeah, it's it's always kind of too soon for me to tell. I know that I wanna I wanted to try to do something kind of similar. Uh, you know, the great world, let the great world spin did something really fun for New York City um, and I was thinking it might be kind of fun to try to do something like that for San Francisco um, and using the Golden Gate Bridge as kind of the conduit to tell kind of like the social history of, of San Francisco which is, is so rich and is so unique um, to kind of use some sort of you know, uh, a tragedy or some sort of like weird madcap calamity on the on the Golden Gate Bridge is a framing device and pop back and forth through a bunch of different stories and a bunch of different psyches. Fight Song is a very streamlined book, um, and I often find that I'm kind of writing my next book in response to what has come right before it. 
Um, Damascus was really sprawling, so kind of fight song, which is one perspective and kind of like a very personality or voice-driven story. I think for the next one, I'll get back into more of the messy mosaic style storytelling where all hell is breaking loose with a bunch of different characters. And you don't really know as the book starts how they're all going to tie together. But if I do my job right, they'll all sort of converge near the climax. Wow. Well, and you know, the Golden Gate Bridge is fascinating. Like not only from like, like just as a feat of engineering, but um, you know, all the, all the jumpers and the, you know, there's just a, I don't know, there's something really uh, magical and captivating and about it. Like, I don't know the history all that well, but I know because it was built in the thirties too. And we're coming out of the depression. We're kind of coming out of prohibition. And if I was to kind of follow that up until, you know, relatively recently, and I feel like I could tell almost the whole social history of, of SF, like just using the bridge as that framing device. And the really cool thing that I, I found out, actually I was reading this yesterday, I was doing some research, is that the, the, there are so many people still out of work because of the Depression that there was kind of this line of guys waiting for somebody to fall off. Um, you know, and then somebody would, would like crash into the net, into the safety net, and it was like, you know, 50 feet down, so even if they didn't die, they were still kind of really injured and then the next person would just kind of go out there um, which is like such a surreal image from my perspective like I'm, I'm really curious to see how that plays out on the page have you have you been like doing like uh, archival research and looking at photos of the bridge and construction and stuff like that yeah because out of san francisco state they have a huge huge archive of, of footage and it's been really fun to just go through all those um all of those photos and read all the kind of the records and whatnot. I remember, I don't know if you know Patrick DeWitt who wrote The Sisters Brothers, uh, but he was telling me that when he was started to research that book, he just, he bought a, like a picture book um, that was set in kind of the gold rush time. And that was the only research he did. Um, he didn't actually like kind of go through, you know, any like archival footage or whatnot. He was just kind of using these like pictorial points of reference and then just kind of turning his imagination loose. And now that I'm trying to like do something about on my own, like it really makes me appreciate the power of being able to do that. Because um, I, I, I would never be able to do something like that. I really want to like dive into the nuances and dive into kind of the idiosyncrasies of what those men and women experienced. But so, but wait. And so, what you're saying is that like his like understanding what he did for the Sisters Brothers has given you the confidence to do something similar with this book, or do you feel like you're going to be taking a, a different or, route? Well, I just, I was just kind of like in awe that he was able to kind of give himself permission to like look at these photographs and say, cool, I'm just going to like make it up from here. Um, and I just think it's, it's fascinating how as authors, we're all trying to go, we're basically all trying to do the same job. Like, and our job is to tell a compelling story. And it's so interesting that we'll all take such like wildly different avenues to go about accomplishing that feat. Well, uh, I don't know, that kind of stuff kind of excites me. Well, yeah, and it's also like, you know, it's an interesting point is that it's like a situation where, you know, you're trying to kind of negotiate the tension between wanting to have some allegiance to historical fact, but also giving yourself permission uh, to just make stuff up. And I think sometimes uh, as writers of fiction, it can be easy to kind of get caught in that uh, that trap of telling yourself that you need to do more research before you can start. You know, I don't know enough yet to start and uh, or you can feel like, you know, I, I have to hew closer to the actual historical record and in order to do justice to these people. But, you know, you also have to give yourself permission at some point to just kind of leap and start making stuff up, which is a big part of what we do. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, one of the things about my first four books, and I was like intentionally trying to evade that whole kind of research disaster. So I was just basically writing about kind of like my own like shitty life experiences and like my friends' shitty life experiences and kind of like stitching novels together that way. Uh, but it finally felt time to try to maybe push myself in a different direction. Uh, all my books were kind of set in contemporary times and maybe... It was it was it was a good a good moment to kind of look backward and see what it might be to have to like occupy a whole other zeitgeist. I mean, that, I think that would present a really interesting challenge. Well, and it also sounds to me, I mean, like you said, you know, you, you've it's not like you've lived there your whole life, but San Francisco is home. You've been there for almost twenty years, and so right. it's almost like you know. And I, I sort of relate to this with Los Angeles because I moved around a lot, and then I've suddenly found myself here for almost. I guess I'm I'm pushing towards 15 years at this point, but um, the, it's like it's like a, you know experiencing a sense of rootedness or kind of staking a claim to a place and saying that this is home. And I think as a writer, right. it's sort of I think it's sort of nice to have a place as a writer, you know. Well, with the you know with the with my first three books, they were all set in the Mission District, like all on the Valencia Quarter. Like well, these were the places that I when I go out of my apartment, I'm, I'm walking by all of these things. So even fight song, like just setting it out in a suburb of the Bay Area, like felt like a huge leap of faith. You know, I was like, you know, what do I really know about this um, this ecosystem, or what do I really know about these people? And I didn't want to just like write the kind of satire um, where I'm like looking down my nose at them and kind of like laughing hysterically. Like I wanted to write the kind of satire where I'm like occupying their consciousnesses sincerely and really telling kind of their plights with like an open heart rather than just kind of like skewering them like, you know, Stephen Colbert or kind of like that ilk. I wanted to really kind of have a, have a, the kind of satire in which we'll like, we'll be able to see ourselves. Like certainly a cautionary tale in fight song. I didn't want it to be, um, you know, too acerbic. Right. Well, I, uh, I congratulate you on it, man. It's impressive. The fourth book and, you're still you're still a young man, right? Yeah, like I don't even know how old you are, but you seem about my age. So, um, I don't know. It's how old are you? Thirty-seven, pushing thirty-eight. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. We're right. We're right in the same zone. Um, but congratulations on it. You've had a big year. New book, uh, new wife, and now uh, new fetus. So, uh, you know, best of luck with everything. Congratulations, and thanks. I so was much. just. Uh, it's funny, I was joking with someone the other day that, like, so much good stuff has happened in the last seven or eight months, and I'm kind of just waiting for a piano to fall on my head as I'm walking down the street. <laughs> right. Not... So, like, it, it, don't you think it's really sick how, like, as humans, if things are going well, we're just waiting for something terribly dangerous to happen? Well, you Where know, does that come from? I'm the same way. I think it's just, uh, you know, it, it has, I think it has something to do with my self-concept. It has something to do with maybe... Uh, being raised Catholic, it has something to do with like some sense of the law of averages. But I think I know people who don't have that. I think I know people who might be just like more uh, genetically predisposed to having uh, a sunny disposition and just accepting good fortune happily, you know, without any kind of like um, you know internal sense of counterbalance or looming danger. I don't know what it is. That sounds like like a whole other world in which like there are like unicorns running down the middle of the street. Yeah, that I'm, that must be a really fun way to live. Like I'm kind of envious of that. I know. Maybe like maybe someday, uh, maybe someday we can write about characters like that to try to figure, figure out <laughs> figure out who the hell they are. <laughs> yeah, now that would almost be science fiction, my friend. You know for sure. <laughs> well, How then... do you talk about these happy people? 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think about my. I mean, I'm thinking in particular about my old roommate who is just like, it's almost like a. I mean, it's almost like a competitive thing. I, I don't even know how to. I don't even know how to describe it, but it's just like a relentless cheerfulness that does not abate. And we lived together for like four years, like platonically as roommates. And um, I am not that way. In case you weren't aware, you know, like I'm, I can. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I like to consider myself like ultimately an optimist, but like I have to work through all sorts of pessimism to get there or something like I, right, it's, right. Like, it's, you know, it's, it's just more complicated. It's not nearly like as clean and pure as her version of, um, happiness or whatever, but I, I well, you know, we, we were talking about like, you know, waiting for reviews and whatnot. And a friend said to me, we had a big party for the book last night in the mission. And, and a friend said to me afterward, like, well, because the reviews are starting this weekend, and the LA Times and the San Francisco Chronicle come out on Sunday, and she goes, "Well, maybe if you just put a lot of like positivity out in the world." <laughs> and I was like, "What the what the fuck are you talking about? Like, how is that, what do you mean put positivity?" In? And she goes, "Well, just you know, think to yourself like, um, I'm really happy about this book, and I hope that other people see what I'm trying to accomplish." She's like, just try to say that as a mantra, you know, throughout the whole day. So I, I tried it this morning, and even though I'm in my apartment completely alone with one shoe on, like I still feel self-conscious about. That. Like I can't just say something like that aloud or even think it to myself. It just feels too weird. Yeah, I just I'd have to see. This is the kind of thing where I would want someone else to be a test case. Like I need some proof that this is going to work before I'm going to start going down that road. It just... <laughs> I can't take myself seriously doing that kind of stuff. The affirmations. You, you have to like put on your emotional lab coat, you know, really like get in your laboratory and see what's going on. Yeah. I think so. I think so. Um, well, I wish you the best of luck with it, man. And I can, again, I congratulate you and, um, you know, hopefully we cross paths before too long. Yeah. I'll be down your way for the, uh, Times festival of books. So let's get a cocktail for sure, man. Take it easy. Always a pleasure, Brad. Thanks. Okay, so there's Mr. Moore, Joshua Moore. Go get his new book. It is called Fight Song. It is out there now from Soft Skull. It is a wonderful novel that is generating critical acclaim. And uh, speaking of critical acclaim, my next guest is Joyce Johnson. She is the author of a new biography of Jack Kerouac. Uh, it is also generating critical acclaim. It is called The Voice is All, The Lonely Victory of Jack Kerouac. It is published by Viking. Uh, and it's a wonderful book that offers a very interesting perspective on uh, Kerouac's life, his work, and better yet, Joyce actually knew him. She knew Jack Kerouac. She went on a, a blind date with him in the 1950s. That's how they met. You're going to get to hear all about that in just a moment. Uh, but my point is, she has unique insight into who he was and how he worked, and I'm thrilled to get to share this conversation with you. So here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Joyce Johnson. The author of The Voice is All. I am in my apartment on the Upper West Side um, and my immediate surroundings. One large room with um, some abstract expressionist paintings uh, that were done by my two late husbands who were both, who were both painters and lots of books, of course, um, and lots of plants, okay. and big windows looking out on Columbus Avenue, on buildings with, you know, uh, red walls like Edward Hopper paintings. Sounds lovely. It is lovely. 
So, and it sounds like a good New York apartment. I mean, you always hear, you always hear horror stories, but this t- sounds like you, you're in a good spot. <laughs> I am. I love this place. Yeah. Uh, well, I want to begin uh, with, I guess, a little bit of background. You know, you, you knew Jack Kerouac, and maybe we can start there. Why don't you talk about how you knew him, how you fell in with the Beats, that period of your life, just so we can get kind of a foundation for everything else. Sure. Well, it all it it all happened back in the back in the late fifties. Uh, I um, I was going to Barnard College from nineteen fifty one to fifty five, and hanging out with a group of older people, people who were you know in graduate school or teaching, um, and these were people who had connections with the Beats because they'd been at Columbia at the same time as Allen Ginsberg and. Uh, and when Jack Kerouac was also around the campus. And uh, so I, I met Alan, actually, at a party when I was 16 years old. And one party, even William Burroughs passed through on his way to uh, to Tangier. But I didn't meet Jack at that time. I met him in uh, January 1957, and it was a blind date set up by Allen Ginsberg, because uh, Alan always looked out for Jack, and Jack uh, was in New York, back from California, and penniless, and didn't have a place to live. And I was one of those rare young women who had her own apartment. And so I, I was, uh, I was very excited about meeting Jack because uh, I had just read his first novel, *The Town in the City*. Uh, I was working for a literary agency at that time, MCA, and they had briefly been Jack's agents, um, and they were discarding a lot of books by former clients. So I took that book and um, went home to read it, and and yeah, you know, it was it was very hard in those days for young women, especially, to leave home. Uh, it was you know, if you, if you did that, it was assumed you were. A really bad girl, up to no good, and there were rifts with you know with 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 your family. So it was a hard time for me, and 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 the book, uh, that particular novel, captured for me uh, a lot of the feelings I had about you know uh, striking out for myself and cutting loose from my from my family. Really, uh, you know, I felt it was really speaking to me in a very direct way, and it was gorgeously written. So uh, I was very excited about meeting Jack, and he called me one night and asked if I would come down and meet him at a counter in Howard Johnson's and said he would be sitting at the counter wearing a red and black check shirt. So I walked in, and there he was, and you know, we, really, we were both sort of shy people, but we really hit it off right away. So yeah, so tell me about these guys back then. You know, like Alan, Jack, first impressions, and then from there, you know, and then beyond. Like, what were they? What were they like? And and I don't know. Try to give us a sense of who they really were, because we all have, you know, so many of us who've read these books uh, have a sense of who they are based on that. But you know, what were they actually like in person? <laughs> uh, well, Alan, Alan was, uh, you know, I. A very exciting person, uh, you know, very intense, uh, and you know, and and filled with a real drive to change the world. You know, when that movie of Howl came out, um, and Alan was played by James Franco, 
uh, I thought they made a big mistake in, you know, in reading Howell in a kind of soft, elegiac way. We're really, at the time that Alan wrote it and first started giving readings of it, it was a polemic, an indictment, you know, against society, a desire to change things. And that spirit just seemed to be missing from the way that poem was interpreted. I thought that was a pity. Um, and Jack, uh, Jack was quiet. Uh, you know, he, he, um, as I said, he, he had, he had, he had this shyness about him. He was, um, he was he was a very sort of conflicted person. I mean, he had an awareness all his life of duality, uh, which, as I found out when I started reading his journals, um, which accounts for what I experienced when I was with him, these sort of constant sort of mood changes, attitude changes. You know, he could be loving, he could be distant, he could be unthinkingly cruel. You know, he, he was all those things that... It was a constantly sort of shifting landscape, um, and uh, and it was was, well, it, the, was it a shifting landscape in your observations of him, or was it was it something that you you really felt personally? Like, what was he like with you? Well, he was like he was that way with me. You know, he he would um, you know his 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 moods and feelings kept you know kept fluctuating. We, we would you know we would. We would be very close, and then he would, you know, um, and then he would write. Well, well we, a lot of the time we wrote to each other because uh, he was doing a lot of moving around at the time I met him. He was with me for a couple of months, then he went off to Tangier, and then he planned to sort of stay in Europe for a while, and I wasn't sure he, I would ever see him again. And then he returned in, in May, but just for a couple of days on his way to San Francisco where he wanted me to beat him. So, uh, but his plans kept changing, and you know he would he would sound very eager for me to come, and then not so eager that his plans were changing. It was, you know, it, it was always hard to kind of figure out what was going on. And of course, I, of course, I was a kid. Uh, he he was indeed drinking very heavily. Um, he had had a, an extremely hard time uh, during the. Uh, during the, during the early 50s when his work wasn't getting published. And he was, you know, going around the country being kind of homeless and, and living on nothing and also, you know, exhausting himself in a way uh, by, you know, writing book after book in very short, concentrated periods of time. And I think he, you know, he fell into depression during those periods when he when he wasn't writing um, he was i think he was he was better off psychologically i think during the period when he we, when he was writing the town and the city which he worked on for about 4 years very steadily and in a very very disciplined way his work was always sort of at the center of his life uh, well, and I was going to say but, too, you know, when I when I read about Jack Kerouac, I mean, obviously there's a discipline that uh, factors into any successful writer's life. Uh, yeah, you can't yeah. Write, you can't write books without it. But he's notable for being um, like taking an almost athletic approach to the physical act of writing. The discipline is severe, and these bursts. It's very it's a very severe discipline. And and even and and I and I and I and I suspect the you know 
the, the discipline that, that went into the whole act of what he called, later called spontaneous writing was even more severe and taxing in its way. I bet it's sort of, you know, what it took him to get into those states of what he called transfixation, uh, you know, where he, where he could do that kind of writing, the kind of writing he did, Visions of Cody, for example. That, that, that remains a mystery. There was nothing about what it took to get there. Uh, and then, um, you know, writing, you know, once he discovered that way of writing, um, writing became for him an ecstatic act. And, and that was dangerous, I think. You know, he, I mean, sometimes writing is ecstatic and sometimes writing is as much fun as going down into the mines, you know, with a pick and a shovel. I mean, most <laughs> times that way. But he really, I, in, in my view, began, discovered a way to write a novel as if it, almost as if he were writing a poem, you know, like seizing the moment of peak inspiration when you, when you get this sort of rush of, rush of ideas and putting everything aside and, and going with it and not getting up from your chair till it was done. It's a, it's a very tough way to go. Well, and, and what about... Because like I've read conflicting things. There's obviously like the Benzedrine use, and there's obviously like the legend of the scroll with on the road, and yeah, you know, all these things have sort of been mythologized at this point. But they I've have all... been mythologized and mis- misunderstood, you know. So let's clear the record. Oh. Like what 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 actually went down when he sat down for one of these marathon writing sessions? And I've read that when he wrote on the road, he was actually quite sober, and it was like a. He was, he was, and, and uh, you know, and I, I think that was true at other times. I think he, I think he wrote um, uh, do, uh, Dr. Sachs, uh, you know, during the time he was taking a lot of marijuana. But I think, I think he, you know, he, he claimed he didn't take anything but coffee when he was writing on the road, and I, and I don't think he was, I don't think he, I think he was cold, sober, you know, while he was working on the town and the city, and then he would save all his drinking and living up for, you know, he would go into the city and meet with his friends and have an incredible binge and then return to his work in his mother's apartment. And were you were you uh, a party to some of these, these uh, you know, uh, binges? He... he <laughs> Uh, well, he he wasn't he wasn't writing at the time that he was with me. I mean, I think he was he 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 was he was writing a bit in his journals and he was writing letters and he was very you know very taken up. Of course, once on the road came out with all that he you know all the demands that were made on him for sort of public appearances and interviews and so on um, in his. Um, but he had he had written so much. Before the publication of On the Road, you know, all those books he wrote in between 1951 when he finished it and 1957 when On the Road actually came out, that, you know, he had begun to begun to worry secretly about whether or not he had sort of written himself out. I looked at a journal of his in, for, the fall, for the fall of 1957 recently, and in it, you know, he, he writes, you know, a sentence, you know, you know, can I write as well as I did in 1956? He was, you know, he was, uh, uh, he was worried about that. Well, you know, that's a good, I mean, and, and I think it's a valid concern because when you look at 
uh, literary biography, you know, no matter who it is almost, and you look at yeah. most writers' lives, there usually is a very concentrated period of time when they do their best work. And it's, it's usually like 10 years, you know, it's usually, yeah, it seems to be true. that way. That's very, very true. few writers have that kind of longevity. You know, you think of like Saul Bellow yeah. publishing in his late eighties and stuff like that, but most writers, it's a very short burst really. Well, uh, you know, but but for Jack, you know, even 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 in ni- even in 1962, when he was in tremendous trouble because of his alcoholism, he was still able to write a very brilliant book, uh, you know, Big Sur, just sort of an astonishing re- account of his uh, psychological state, which he wrote very quickly. Because wasn't that which book? He wrote, which, yeah, he wrote that very quickly. Yeah, like a yeah. matter a matter of days. I think so, yeah. Uh, but uh, what what I, I think people are gradually becoming aware that um, the, the, that three week writing stint that produced on the road in the spring of 1951 uh, had been preceded by you know th- three years of, of relentless attempts to write that book, trying it this way, trying it that way, with different sets of characters, different plots. I mean, it went through all, you know, there were, there were just all these attempts. And, of course, he, he, he had originally had the idea for writing uh, that and On the Road um, in, in 1956, about a year before he met Neil Cassidy. The original idea, which is in his journal, was um, that he would like, he would like to write about... Uh, a man who, after recovering from a long illness, uh, decides to, you know, go hitchhiking across America to regenerate himself, and on the way uh, encounters a lot, a lot of symbolic characters. Um, and this was before he met Neil. So for for a while, you know, that the idea of the, the protagonist making a journey was always sort of like a solitary journey. There wasn't this companion. But there were. They, and, it's, it's interesting. Like some of the. I remember reading. Um, I forget who it was. Was it Harrington, who had an idea, or you know, there there were like there were kind of like premonitions of Neil before uh, Jack actually met him. Do you know what I'm that, saying? There were. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, he'd heard about him, but I don't. I don't know that he was too impressed by what he heard until he actually met him. In fact, he 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 says in Visions of Cody, I thought he would be an American saint who might turn out to be somewhat boring, you know. Um, and uh, or what about? Oh, you know who it was? It was that was it was Bill Hubbard, the the Texan that Kerouac yeah. met in the psych ward. Oh, yeah, that 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 yeah that that figure that uh, that sort of wild figure who who was a wanderer, this rootless person who was sort of a you know a a kind of precursor of Neil. That's true. Right. So um, let's, I guess a, a natural question would be, since Jack Kerouac has obviously been written about um, by so many different people, and he, you know, there's, there's quite a lot of uh, literature out there about his life and his work, why this book and why this particular approach to it? Well, I, I felt there was, there was a lot of important stuff about Jack that really, really hadn't been covered. Um, um, I I had the desire to first of all to write a book that, that rather than 
you know, focusing so much on the sensational episodes in his life. I mean, we've had plenty of books about those. I mean, that, that I wanted to really closely follow, you know, his development into a writer and the way that he found his mature voice. Um, I also uh, had, a, had a very strong hunch that, um, that his Franco-American ethnicity was a huge factor in his life. And I wanted to understand it. I mean, everybody knew that Jack had, you know, came from a Franco, Franco-American family, but oddly enough, no American writer had really gone into the implications of that. So once I, you know, once I began getting more of an understanding of, uh, of, of the Franco-Americans, uh, you know, I, had a, I, I, I began to see Jack sort of in new ways. And, and understood how much he was a product of that background. And what did yeah? What did that background bring to his uh, his life and his work? You know what what would what was it about all that? Like, can you describe it? Sure. Uh, well, you know, in, in in this country, although we're very close neighbors of Quebec, we really know very little about the, the, the about that particular minority, the Franco Americans. They had. They had started. The, they had started leaving their sort of hard scrabble farms in Quebec in the 1880s and 1890s. They had enormous families, and their land was not producing enough food to feed them. And so they they came down to the, the, the factory towns in New England in search of jobs. There was plenty of work there, and actually, entire families could go to work: men, men, women, and children. So uh, they came and settled into these different places in New England and in Massachusetts and New Hampshire, in Maine, in Vermont. Uh, and in these in these mill towns, they tended to live in in rather insular communities. They were they unlike other groups, they really weren't looking to become assimilated. They they had a whole mystique about their culture and their language. And their religion, which was a kind of form of Jansenist Catholicism, and they wanted to and, and they wanted to preserve it. So even people who, uh, you know, uh, were born in America or or, or, or and grew up here uh, did not speak English well, and their children were ed- educated in uh, church schools that were. You know, half 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 the day was conducted in English, and the other half in French. Um, so they they really kept to themselves. At the same time, uh, this was reinforced by the fact that uh, New Englanders despised them, and there was tremendous prejudice against them. They were perceived as dumb and primitive people, and and there were horrible terms for them, such as the Chinese of America. Or white niggers. Remember that passage in On the Road where Jack is walking in Denver and thinks sort of bitterly about his white ambitions. Well, nobody, nobody who really felt white would have coined that phrase. You know, he he. And so Jack, coming out of that tradition, which he he didn't want to lose. I mean, he wanted to be, he wanted to go out into America and become a writer. And in order to do that, he had to leave that community. In order to do that, he had to master English. 
because there was no way he could he could write in that uh, Canadian French, which was a, a language of its own, um, with significant differences from classical French. Well, yeah, and I was I was also struck, you know, by how hard, well, a by how early he knew his path. I mean, he had a sense of this from a very young age, which a lot of writers do. And then yeah. also how um, how hard he worked to educate himself and how disciplined. Very he, hard from a young age. I mean. He, as a, as a, as a as a kid he tried to read all the books of the library he would go there every saturday and return home uh with just armloads of books and he called this his saturday avidities of reading uh at the age of, at the at the age of uh i guess he was around 15 16 he discovered goethe who was immensely important to him uh, one thing really changed uh jack's life because uh, the expectation had been that he would, you know, uh, go through high school in in those um, those French parish schools, uh, but his family moved and there was no room for him in the um, in the French junior high school. So he had to go into the American public school system. Um, and there, uh, his ability to write was recognized by his English teacher, even though Jack, I, I think, was quite silent in class because he wasn't yet fully fluent in English and, I, and felt embarrassed uh, by that. Um, he, he, went, he had been registered in that school as he was in high school as a commercial student, you know, destined for, a, you know, kind of a low-level clerical job at best. That's it. Yeah, and you know it's interesting to think about how his bilingualism affected the voice that he ultimately found in his work. You know what I'm That's saying? That's right. The hard work well, that he had to do to learn English, you know, had to have given him, I don't know, maybe an insight into the way the language worked that maybe a native tongue speaker might not well, have. He had a tremendous he had a tremendous sensitivity to sound. You know, um, and. Uh, uh, you, you know those sort of um, portions of of Doctor Sachs where these sort of horror movie characters speak to each other. Uh, Content-wise, what they say doesn't make too much sense. Sense, but the sense is sort of carried by the, by the music of their of their sentences, and and I, I sort of feel that it it captured the way Jack. Um, Jack heard those movies when his English sense of it, when his knowledge of English was imperfect, and you know he he picked up what was going on just by the way the dialogue sounded. Uh, does that make sense to you? Yeah, no, it, to- it yeah. totally does. Yeah. And, and you know, I think like it, you talk about his youth and you know the the major events that formed him, obviously. Um, his ethnicity and the bilingualism were huge factors, uh, but I can't. We, we can't leave Lowell. We can't leave his youth without talking about Gerard because uh, it's so clear. Uh, you know, when you reflect on his later work and particularly on the theme of duality, uh, that his, the loss of his older brother Gerard had a huge impact. And can you just talk a little bit about that part of his life? Yes, indeed. It was. It was. It. it Gerard uh, w- was nine, and uh, when he died of rheumatic fever, 
and Jack was and Jack was four years old, uh, and uh, I, I think and and he, and he had been very very close to his brother and kind of as Jack said imitated him, and you know he you know there was a lot of Gerard in him. Uh, it was also it was also a very early uh, introduction to the fact that, you know, people died and did not come back. Uh, you know, that's a lesson you'd, you, you, that's a lesson you don't forget. It's just, uh, it's so, it's, I can't help but see such a sadness in Kerouac. And to think of a four-year-old little boy, four-year-old Jack yeah. Kerouac, when you lose a brother like that and you, and you actually witness his decline. And I mean, you know, it's heartbreaking. It makes me it makes me it makes him such a sympathetic figure for me because of the uh, the enormous difficulty of that and how that can leave a lasting imprint. I, I, I indeed, and and you know, my my sense is that that during that that period, while well, well, Gerard was Gerard was so ill that Jack was to a, to an extent left on his own by his parents because they were so caught up in you know, and taking care of Gerard and worrying about him and so on. Uh, and, uh, and, and then after Ger- and Jack's mother really was practically had a, a breakdown for a while after, after Jack's, after Gerard's death. And, you know, and she handled it in a terrible way, uh, because she, she told Jack, she, remember she's talking to a four year old, you know, in a, in a sense you're, you know, your brother died to save you. Ugh. I mean, that's you know, so so you know, immediately guilt sets in. You know, and and you know, and I, I would, you know, and this sort of so Jack had this, I think, kind of survivor's guilt very early, plus the sense that we were all going to die, um, and and the the. the um, the French Canadians, uh, you know, were the, 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 their 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 religion, their their brand of Catholicism, was very very focused on death. Uh, the idea was that we were put on life, to, put in, you know, that we were put into the world to to live and suffer, and there was nothing much we could do about it but accept our lot. And but then when we would die, things would things would would then get good because we would go to heaven. Uh, you know, that was the message that they gave to sort of small children. <laughs> yeah, I was raised Catholic, so I got a little bit of that when I was a kid. Yeah, <laughs> but it was very, I think it was very intense in that community. Very, yeah. very intense. So let's, uh, let me ask you about his immediate family. Because, uh, you know, obviously he, he's had a very well-documented, uh, or he had a very well-documented uh, relationship with his mother. That was probably you know, especially as he got into his adult life, the most enduring and important relationship in his life. Um, but what about his And she fa- really, she, you know, she really clung to him after the loss of Gerard. Right. And so, like, that's and, the thing and about... And treated him as if he were fragile, you know. And it became this very dependent or codependent kind of relationship. Um, and then what about his father and his sister? Like, where were they and what were they? You know, can you talk a little bit about them? Sure. Um well, his his father, uh, Jack describes his father, Leo Kerouac, as a sort of, you know, very energetic, entrepreneurial young businessman, you know, trying to make a 
you know, trying to make a good life for himself and his family. And, and uh, they, the Kerouacs were a bit better off than a lot of other Franco-Americans in, in, in Lowell um, because Leo Kerouac had his own business as a printer. He was, he was very bright. He had a good command of English. And, you know, he could move back and forth between the, the, the French and the Anglo worlds pretty, you know, pretty easily. Um, he was also a man with a, with a passion for gambling, and he was a big drinker. His mother was a drinker, too. Um, and, um, and he made some, you know, he, he, he spent a lot of money, get, lost a lot of money gambling, and by the 1930s, you know, lost money by, uh, you know, borrowing money to invest in his business. And then he was kind of wiped, his business was sort of wiped out by the flood of 1936. And then the family fortunes fell drastically. Um, and Leo no longer was his own boss. Uh, and he was a, a bitter man, um, you know, uh, furious at what had happened to him, uh, angry at, at the town, which he called Stink Town, you know, <laughs> and, he, and, and he began to put all his hopes in Jack because, uh, you know, he, um, he, he believed that Jack had the makings of a football star and saw a role for him as Jack's manager. This is what he wanted for Jack. He he did not encourage him in his dreams of becoming a writer at all. So how was Jack in his adolescence working on his writing? Like what in these in these very early stages, uh, you know, of in, in terms of the evolution of his voice? Like where did he start? What were his earliest influences? Well, um, one one very. Uh, well, Okay, he was he was reading all sorts of stuff. He was reading a lot of pulp fiction and Shadow Magazine, and uh, you know, uh, you know, as well as uh, you know, Mark Twain and Jack London and uh, writers like that. Um, and uh, he began to uh, he began to do these sort of little newspapers. Because uh, he, he he was very, he was very his father had really interested him in horse racing, and in fact he he had dreams of being a jockey himself, <laughs> and his father would sometimes take him to the races, and he read all the racing papers. So Jack created began to create his own racing papers, uh, which were pretty remarkable um, achievements for for a kid. They were very carefully printed out and laid out in columns with pictures pasted in and in them um uh he uh, well he 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 was jack he was jack lewis the, the publisher of the paper he was jack lewis the reporter on this whole uh world of the turf and he was jack lewis uh the owner of the winning horse and jack lewis the winning jockey and he would report on all these horse races in the world of the track in these newspapers, so it was a whole imagined world that he that he wrote about. Uh, uh, they were really kind of works of childhood genius. Yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing to me that he was. I don't know, like your descriptions of his uh, approach to reading and his approach to writing uh, yeah. in high school certainly uh, went well beyond mine. <laughs> 
and then he you know and he wrote a you know he he wrote a a, a football novel while he was while he was in high school when he was around sixteen. Well, yeah, and he About was like, a, and he was like selling it. You know, well, he wasn't only writing these things, but he was selling it to his friends and making a buck. I mean, he had a, that's <laughs> right, that's right, yeah. So he had a sense of his own value early. Yeah, and this determination to be a writer, and and he figured out that that his only hope was to get out of Lowell and to get a football scholarship uh, somewhere, so that he could get a college education, which otherwise would have been beyond the family's means. So he really devoted himself to becoming an athlete. And so talk about Horace Mann, because that seems like a pivotal moment in his development and his exposure. And, um, you know, just it was a pivotal moment in the course of his life. Uh, uh, Definitely, because he had a he had he had gotten a a scholarship to Columbia, but it had to be preceded um, by a year at Horace Mann to make up the deficits in his education. And of course, he would he was to play football for Horace Mann while he, while he was there. So um, he was really he was uprooted suddenly from this whole insular culture he had grown up in uh, and among all these working class people, and transported to a very very fancy prep school. Uh, where most of the students were rich Jewish kids, and uh, and uh, this really was an adjustment for him because the uh, his family, like many Franco Americans, were tremendously anti-Semitic. You know, like all oppressed groups, they they looked for for another group to despise. And of course, anti-Semitism was very widespread in, in the country at that time. And did 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 Jack feel that way, or did he? It seemed like he quickly sort of. I thought there was like a kinship there. Cause it, it it was it was like everything with Jack. It was sort of a double thing. On the one hand, he gravitated toward these bright Jewish kids who he could discuss books with and and go and hear jazz with and so on. Uh, you know, on on the other hand, he retained some of his prejudice at the same time. Well, yeah, uh, and I, you know, and I'm I'm so struck too over the not only in this particular phase of his life, but all throughout, um, you know, the build up to his big breakout success with On the Road. I'm struck by the turns of fate uh, that unfolded that enabled him to come into contact with people who could help him advance his career. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, they, it wasn't like it was an, a never ending series of lucky strokes, but there were definitely some major lucky moments for him and he he wound up in the right crowds and he met John Clellan Holmes and he met you know he he really and he had Allen Ginsberg as his champion well so that he would that, that he would meet Allen Ginsberg and William Burroughs you know at you know at you know at the same time you know that you know as well as Lucian Carr who was very brilliant uh, that was uh, you know that 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 really was a stroke of luck so what was it like <sighs> I, you know, it's, it, you, I get kind of a sense of what, Ameri- what America and what New York City was like in these days. But it seems like to be in New York City in the mid-1940s at the end of World War II was a very good time to be there. It seemed like kind of a golden age or something to me. Or Am I romanticizing it too much? No, I don't, I, I don't think you are. It was, it was a period when they're beginning to be very, very um, exciting developments in the arts. Uh, there were a lot of very... Uh, uh, smart and, and gifted people around, 
and it, it really was also a time when the book was at the central, at, you know, in the center of our culture, uh, which is, you know, today the, you know, the the book really has been seriously downgraded. I, I don't think if a, a novel such as like On the Road came out today, I don't think it's in the power of a novel to cause so much change and ferment as the publication of On, On the Road did in 1957. It's just out of the question. So what, was the, what were the set of circumstances, just for people who might not be clued into the details of the history? Like how did, how did Jack meet... Alan and William Burroughs. Like, how did that all go down? And Lucian Carr. Well, he, you know, he met them. Um, he met them rather accidentally uh, because he was um, he was living with um, Edie Parker, who who would become his first wife, a, a young a young woman who was living in the neighborhood, and um, and with um, uh, Joan Joan Adams. Uh, who would later marry? Who would later become William Burroughs' wife, and was the wife that he shot? She's a she's a tragic story. She seemed like she such, is a tragic such a, story. Such a bright girl, you know. She's yes, and, but it was it was hard to be a bright girl back then. You know, there wasn't much bright women could do, um, and she she lost her way. Uh, well, anyway, uh, uh, Edie happened to be taking an art class uh, at night at Columbia, and there she she there she she met Lucian Carr, and uh, and she, I think she met him while Jack was away at at sea, and then when he came back, uh, you know, she was very taken with Lucian, who was a very attractive guy, and he began dropping over at the apartment all the time to see the two women. And um, and she introduced uh, Jack. She introduced him to Jack, and in the West End bar, and Lucian had also was also staying in a in a dorm, Columbia dorm, on the same floor as Allen Ginsberg. So they had they had become acquainted, and Allen was quite smitten with Lucian, as a matter of fact. So shortly after after uh, Jack. Um, Jack met Lucian. Uh, Alan came over to see him, and after that, uh, Lucian's other friend from St. Louis uh, made his acquaintance as well, and that was William Burroughs, who was, you know, living in, who was living in New York at that time in the village. And so it was just faded, and you know, you was, you, you, t- you talk about Alan being smitten with Lucian. Uh, there was a lot of people being smitten with a lot of people in this group. That's one thing that yeah. <laughs> strikes me. It, yeah. was, a, yeah. it was a particularly uh, incestuous. There was a lot. There were lots of interminglings, lots of you know, men that, sharing that, girlfriends, that's true. all that stuff. But we all, you know, we have to, we have, you know, re- reading, 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 uh, looking at all this history now from my vantage point of a seventy-seven-year-old woman. You know, I, I, I had this sort of grandmotherly feeling of. Oh my God! How terribly young all these people were, <laughs> right. you know. Well, I was going to ask these, you. In, these intense friendships and crushes and so on are, you know, very characteristic of, you know, people in their late adolescence. Well, I was going to ask you because you know you had an intimate relationship with Jack. You spent this very like intense period of his life with him. Uh, yeah. You knew him personally. Like, what is it like to now 
I mean, I, you, and you've written a, another book about that part, uh, you know, of your life and that experience. But what is it like? Yeah, to minor form- characters. Correct. Yeah. So, yeah. what is it like to formally biography him now, and to and to learn about maybe things that you didn't know previously? Like, were there moments where you were like, "Oh my God, I had no idea," and, you know? Like, did you find yourself surprised at any point, or did you find past events coming into a new focus? Oh, I, I definitely found past events coming in, coming into a new focus. Um, I, I had real hunches about Jack. Well, I wrote I wrote um, minor characters uh, back in uh, you know in the nineteen eighties. It was published in nineteen eighty three, and then and there wasn't that much around about Jack. And over the years, I I, I read you know some of the biographies that came out. And then, you know, and then especially by the 1990s, um, um, more and more of Jack's uh, writings began to be published. Um, his letter, uh, you know, a selected volumes of his selected letters, uh, the uh, portions of his journals, a, bo- a, very, a book of a, bo- a collection of his early writings, uh, Called the Top and Underwood, um, uh, and you know, I, I began to learn more, more and more about him. And I, you know, there were a lot of things I felt about Jack, sort of intuitively, but I didn't um, didn't have the, the, you know, the information to back all this up. And I found that a lot of my hunches were correct as I uh, began um, researching this book. Um, I wasn't, uh, I, I felt actually, you know, at this point in time, I, you know, I, I, I really felt very objective. I, I didn't feel shocked or hurt by anything I found. Uh, you know, I just, I just, uh, I just had this tremendous curiosity about who this person was. Uh, of course, I'm a very different person now than I was as a kid of 21, because I was really a kid. Well, and there seems to be something, too, because of Jack's, like, elu- he's sort of an elusive character. He is, he is elusive. I mean, on, on the one hand, you know, he, he seemed like a very, he seemed like a very, very op- open person, but there were things he, you know, things that, that he really held back. Uh, you know, he, you know, he, he never... Uh, he never, I don't think he ever really discussed his feelings about being Franco-American or feeling only half American with any of his, you know, with any of the friends he made after, after leaving Lowell. That was something he really kept to himself. And, it, you know, he, but he had a very pervasive sense of being different and of there being no one around in the New York scene who was like him, except his mother. Yeah, I mean, I can't, I couldn't help it. In reading the book, I couldn't help but... Um, picturing, I couldn't help but picture you as kind of a detective, and I can imagine, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I can imagine that you know you have this brief, uh, intense period of, of your life where you're interacting with uh, this major American artist, and he's a very charismatic and, and elusive guy, and then you, you know it's almost like you're now going back and saying like, what the heck happened, and trying to yeah, and, and, and who was he? Right, you to know, get to the bottom and, of it. And, yeah, and it's it's like all this experience was sort of encoded, and I had to you know I had to tra- I had to you know translate the code. Well, and, and uh, speak- so it was a very it, it was a very it was a very exciting process for me. I was um, 
uh, actually was the first time I had ever done archival research, and I honestly, I, I proceeded chronologically, and I never knew what I was going to find next time I went to the library. Well, I really felt I was sort of living inside an unfolding life. Uh, so that that was very exciting. Well, one of the things, you know, because there was a lot, I, I know, you know, I guess a good bit, or at least the basics of the Kerouac biography, and I've read different books about him, and obviously there's kind of a prismatic view of, you know, what tormented him. You know, I read uh, Subterranean Kerouac years ago, which takes, yeah, the, yeah. T- takes the opinion that it was his sexuality and his repressed homosexuality, mm-hmm. you know, that that yeah. was a big problem. You You seem to disagree, you know, that you take a different tack. I do take a different tack. I mean, I think the I think the sexual problem thing was was very much overemphasized and sensationalized in that book. So you think he was? I mean, Jack was heterosexual. Do you think he was bisexual? Do you have any? Do you, I think do, he was. I think he was heterosexual and and, and somewhat bisexual. Um, I, I recently. Um, found a letter in which he, uh, well, he it's, it's an odd place to find this, but he was writing to the producer, Jerry Wald, who was the original for um, Sammy Glick <laughs> uh, in Bud Schulberg's novel, but, but who wanted to make a, a film of On the Road for a while. And he was sort of trying to explain his, his feeling for Neil, and he wrote, and I think this is really important. I wish I had read this while I was working while I was working on my book. Um, that you know, he he you know he, he desires women. He said, but I I feel I am a man enough to love men. So I thought that was a very interesting quote, don't you? Yeah, no, I mean it's like the the relationships that they all had with each other. You know, where yeah. un- there's an unusual level of intimacy between Alan and Neil, and um, yeah. Jack and Alan, and you know, they all sort of, you know, they really uh, shared a lot. You know, not only physically, they did sh- yeah, like, I think well, a- intellectually and yeah, artistically, the- yeah. And they weren't. They together. were all influ- influencing each other tremendously. And it seems like too, like you know, because like it, it's it's convenient to sort of imagine this time period as all of them living in the same apartment or in the same brownstone. Yeah. But it, it really, you know, when you actually read the history, it was more like these pockets of togetherness that were extremely intense and then they would all scatter again. It was like, you know, this coming together That's and then right. this, this bursting apart and then this coming together and this bursting apart. And, um, you know, with Neil in particular, like the Neil and Jack relationship, which is so, you know, central to the mythology yeah. and also yeah. the work itself. Like that's a very interesting relationship. Like how do you see that having done all of this research? Well, you know, one, one, one way in which these men were sort of turning each other on was not physically, but with language. They all, you know, they all were, you know, tremendous sort of talkers and thinkers, including Neil. Um, and, um, uh, you know, and, and on the road, Jack had, you know, was able to really, I mean, he, he, he kind of could um, evoke uh, the way Neil spoke and his rambling sentences and his sentence rhythms that gave so much electricity to whatever he said. and he, But he used this to, you know, put his own thoughts into Neil's mouth. You know, the, the Neil Cassidy, uh, the, the Dean Moriarty that he created was really not identical with, um, Neil, with 
Neil Cassidy. Well, nor, 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 nor was the Sal Paradise identical with him. Jack. Well, and there's you know there's there's so much mythology around Neil, and you know it, I can't you can't help. Oh, it. I, oh, I know, and and there's this this endless appetite for you know to for to, to show uh, to to prove that they, you know that everything everything in in Jack's work actually happened or happened just that way, and it was really you know it, it, there was a basis of reality, but in the and and there were things that Jack remembered. But also created. It was a mix, which is not so you know, which is the way people write fiction. Well, and the thing too is even autobiographical fiction. And there was also the fallacy that you know people believe that Jack must have kept these, uh, you know, must have kept these notebooks in which he jotted down every single thing that ever happened to him. That he, you know. And um, you know, I I really thought I would find such notebooks when I when I started working in the library. Instead, I found you know he did keep he did keep notebooks and diaries, but um, he didn't use them for the purpose of jotting down in detail you know what had transpired that day and what Neil had said and what Jack had said you know. Uh, so you know, Oliver was really created out of memory. Well, and he had an extraordinary recall, which you mentioned. He had he had an extraordinary recall, but 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 you know beyond that, you have to create. You can't re- you can't recall everything. Well, and and just to you know just to finish with Neil, you know one of the things that I find is that the the popular mythology around him is that he's what the angel headed hipster. He's this sort of unbound soul that yeah. is not, he's not encumbered by all of the. Um, you know, white ambitions or whatever, you know, he, he was kind of this, this ultimate free spirit. But then when you dig into it and you read more about him, uh, he wasn't quite so saintly. You know what I'm saying? Like, he was a kind of a rough character. No. And I think no, he, that- was, he, was, he was a rough character. And he was also pretty, you know, pretty tormented and at times suicidal. Right. And he had all these, he had all these ambitions. He, too, wanted to be a writer, but he couldn't... Um, I don't know. He 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 didn't have the the ability and discipline to uh, develop his talent. You know, he was, and 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 he was also you know haunted by the fact that he would be arrested again and put back into jail as he had been in his adolescence. Hmm. So, so uh, you know, he he you know he often sounded rather despairing in his letters. Yeah, exactly. That was something that struck me is that there was a great sadness in Neil, and then also the. Yeah. Uh, you know, his, the abandonment of him or the separation he had from his own mother, you know, I don't want yeah. to, I don't want to take on too much of a Freudian stance, but it seems to no, me. No, that must have been terrible. After which he was raised by his father, who was a drunk, who lived in a Skid Row hotel with him. Yeah. I mean, what, it, kind, what kind of upbringing is that? Well, and it makes all of his womanizing and all of his, um, you know, and it was men too, it was whatever. He was just so in search of love and affection. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. He, was so star- yeah. he was so starved for it. So it makes... You know all of that legendary womanizing and his his conning people and his seduction powers or whatever it makes it brings that into a new uh, context you know for me and it makes it make more sense and it also adds yeah. you know the element of sadness <laughs> yeah no it was sad so um, I want to ask you I want to shift gears a little bit and I want to ask you um, when it comes to Jack's uh, voice the voice that uh, you know ultimately kind of uh, congealed and on the road and and then developed from there. I want to ask you about Louis Ferdinand Celine because I think this is some something of a 
new territory. I mean, I'd, I had read before that he admired um, Journey to the End of the Night, which happens mm-hmm. to be just, you know, uh, for the record, happens to be like my favorite novel of all time. So It's an incredible novel, it's isn't an, it? Oh, I, it's spectacular. I read it for the first time when I was, when I was working on this book, and uh, I was bowled over by it. Yeah. It's, it's a wonderful book. I mean, it's dark. It's not for everybody, but to me... And it had a, tr- it had a tremendous um, uh, influence on other writers of, of Jack's generation, like Mailer and Vonnegut and Heller. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's one yeah. of those. It's one of those books that I don't think. I mean, I think writers know it and love it, but I don't think maybe the popular, you know, popular culture or you know the broader population is aware of just how influential it has been. So, like, what yeah. was what was it about Celine's work and particularly Journey? Because Celine's work and, and there's also some parallels between the evolution of Celine's voice, I think. And the way that Jack's work took off, especially when I think of like Visions of Cody and I think of Celine's later novels, not that they're totally identical, but there is something uh, similar in the, the, I don't know, the splintering of the voice or the avant-garde-ness of it. Um, but how in particular did Journey affect Kerouac's evolution? Well, I think it. Um, I, I think it, it was one of the books that also showed him a, a, the power of the first-person voice in fiction which he had been avoiding using. I mean, he always, you know, even when he was very young and, and, and wrote in, you know, at times in stories and things in the first, or, or essays in the first person, you, you could feel that sort of latent power. But he, you know, for, for Jack at, at that time, he believed the way to write a novel was sort of a big canvas novel with a third-person omniscient narrator, and that was, that's what he was writing up on uh, you know, trying over and over again, you know, first in town in the city, and then up to the point where he finally sat down and, and wrote on the road in the, in the spring of 51. So, you know, I think he was, he was, he, he, he was very attracted to, um, uh, Sweden's voice, which also sort of jumped from one association to the other. Um, and was a, was a very French voice. I think that was, that was very important to him. And not not a sort of um, cultivated French voice, um, you know. It was it was a voice of someone who had you know grown up in the rough streets. Uh, another thing that was very important to Jack, I think, in um, that particular novel, was the fact that it was the story of a a man named uh, Bartimeu and his alter ego Robinson. And they would, you know, they, you know, who he would keep encountering at different parts of his life, and who was always a bit ahead of him, you know, and and a bit, you know, a bit more far, more far out and more dangerous than Bartimeu was. And Jack was sort of fascinated by Robinson, and you know, there are constant references to Robinson in, you know, in in Jack's journals. So I think he he regarded Neil. Um, or the uh, Dean Moriarty character in On the Road as, you know, his his Robinson, you know. Dean Moriarty is Sal Paradise's Robinson. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny to think about the relationship that Kerouac and, and Ginsburg, I guess, had with Cassidy. And there's parts of me that at, at some moments I think to myself, like, was this parasitic? Like, And then there's also, like, I can have almost simultaneously the thought that there was something very sweet about the way that Kerouac and Ginsburg looked to Neil as a kind of teacher. 
like yeah, like yeah. He, he was there to almost help them unlearn all of the um, structured institutional learning that they had been uh, subjecting themselves to in school and and particularly in college. You know, he was almost like he had this um, you know self self taught uh, intelligence that they envied or, or really admired. But then there's also well, there's also well, a part Neil of looked to them as teachers as the guys who you know they right. were the pros at writing. Right, you could maybe give him some tips. You know. But did you ever think to yourself when you were doing this research, was there ever – do you ever feel like it was maybe just a, the case where maybe Kerouac didn't love Neil as much as um, we might think, but that he was using him because he found him valuable to his work? Or is that a misreading? I think it was all – you know, he, he had a – you know, he had a, a real love for Neil, but he also he also loved him because he was such a – a source for his fiction. Yeah, he's just the, the ultimate character. You know, and and writers are writers are are pretty ruthless about using the people they love in their work. <laughs> I don't know anything. I don't know what you're talking about, Joyce. You don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Gee. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so, is there a? I mean, it's kind of it's kind of essential. You know, a lot of beginning writers, especially people who write memoirs, get really hung up on this point. You know, you know, if I write something, is it going to hurt so and so? And but you, in a sense, the, the writer has to sort of brutally thrust that consideration aside and go forward. Well, it's like the uh, the old Norman Mailer line where he says, uh, "A writer who's afraid to offend people is like a surgeon who's afraid to cut." That's it. Right. Right. <laughs> so, uh, with regard to the voice and like what Jack ultimately arrived at. Um, what, what is it? <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like what, what is it in that voice in particular? I think on the road, even though he might've had, uh, you know, I've read that he, you know, didn't have the highest opinion of it or didn't consider it among his best work later, but that was obviously the book that had the greatest resonance. What do you think it was? Like, do you, can you pinpoint it? Uh, it was, uh, uh, it, it was a, it it had a, a particular sort of music, um, and it had um, it, it had it was the most natural way for Jack to write. You know, he had been resisting writing in that fashion, as I've said, um, and he also uh, because it was you know it was a first person voice and it was sort of direct. And and sort of non-literary. He'd been trying to be very literary before writing these sort of Melvillean novels. Uh, but but um, yeah, he he came. I, I it's my my conviction that he came to this voice that he would use in um, in On the Road. Finally, uh, short about a month before he actually started writing it. Uh, he had been casting around desperately for how to how to approach his road novel, and then um, and for a voice for it I, as well. And he um, wrote a novella in in French. It's really you know he he had written some frag more fragmentary things in French. This is a whole almost finished novella called uh, La Nuit uh, La, La Nuit Ma Femme, or that means the night is my woman, or Les Travaux de Michel Breton, which means the jobs of Michel Breton. 
and it was, you know, directly sort of autobiographical um, novella about a guy, a Franco-American guy, who is uh, supported either by his mother or his wife, and is an unsuccessful writer. And looking back on his, you know, uh, passionate desire to become a writer, and all the, you know, terrible jobs he sort of had to take and walk out on along the way, whereas, you know, writing was a thing he most wanted to do. And um, it's it's a it's a terrific piece of writing, and I'm I'm so much hoping that um, somebody will it'll be translated someday and published because it's a it's a it's a key piece of Kerouac writing, and I think that voice of this uh, Franco-American in that book led directly to um, to Sal Paradise's voice, where he began to let some of the sound the French sound back into his English. Well, I was going to say, it sounds like a very, I mean, a key piece of information there is that he wrote it in French. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and you know, there's also other mentions in the book, uh, you know, earlier, years earlier, years before he wrote On the Road, where, you know, you're reading through his journals and you'll catch like a page or a paragraph where you can, you can really hear the music that ultimately found its way into On the Road. And it strikes me as interesting that, you know, writers can struggle for years and years and years to get their own method, which everyone sort of has to arrive at. And yeah. it, it's sort of tantalizing and, and kind of uh, heartbreaking to see that, like, oh, my God, eight years before he actually found it, he sort of had it, at least for a he page. He had it. He had it, but he didn't, he didn't have the confidence in it. It wasn't the way he thought you were supposed to write. And so what you was – did he have – when he finally did allow himself to write that way, was it confidence or do you think that it was finally just like, fuck it, I'm going to do it? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, wh- where do you think he came down there? And how did it really, I don't know, explode out of him? Uh, I think that voice sort of just sort of carried over in his head when he sat down to finally he said, okay, I'm going to put down on paper what happened, you know, with Neil and me in the years that I was on the road, rather than, rather than fictionalizing it. He had been doing these very fictionalized versions of... Uh, of the story of of going on the road and the relationship with Neil and and, and other characters, uh, uh, he'd even he'd even the summer um, the summer of um, 1950 while he was in Mexico City, he had written um, a version of On the Road which in which the characters were two young French Canadians, a boy named you know Wilfred Boncoeur and uh, his cousin who go on the road together um, and with uh, 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 cousin as uh, cousin as, as as sort of the guide and leader of the two well it's and it's sort of a you know it's it, it's important because again the mythology with on the road and the writing of this thing in three weeks like even if he did sit down and, and you can just for the record, he did sit down and write on the road in that three week period he did he did indeed he but, did indeed but the, you know it's important to note that there were many uh, attempts at writing the book, lengthy attempts. Lengthy attempts, and, and, and it's, it's, it's actually extraordinary that he kept on and didn't just, you know, can the whole idea because he really seemed to be getting nowhere with it, you know. And, and of course, he has this reputation of someone who never revised and so on, but actually, you know, to sort of write 
you know, a good many pages of something and then cast them aside and then try again and then say, no, that's not it, and cast that aside. I, I can't think of a more brutal form of self-criticism and revision than that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it just, you know, it just it makes me feel so much better because if you had just sat down in one shot and wrote, written that thing in, in three weeks, it would be... Uh, depressing for me personally. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like it, I mean, there, there were elements in On the Road of, of of things he had written before in all these other versions. You know, uh, moments of epiphany and and so on. Uh, some stuff from his notebooks. You know, but as, as I said to you, uh, you know, he really he really most of the time wasn't wasn't recording his experiences in any detail. Hmm. Well, I could uh, I could sit here and ask you questions all day. It's all very fascinating. And uh, the book is wonderful. Oh, and thank you. I thank you. I congratulate, uh, congratulate you on it, and I thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Well, it's been great fun talking to you. It really has been a pleasure. All right, folks, there you go. That is Joyce Johnson. Her book, once again, is called The Voice is All, The Lonely Victory of Jack Kerouac. It is available now from Viking. You can find her online at JoyceJohnsonBooks.net, and you can find her on the Facebook, too. And please be sure to check out Fight Song, the new novel by Joshua Moore, available now from Soft Skull Press. It is the February selection of the TNB Book Club, so don't forget to go join the Nervous Breakdown Book Club over at thenervousbreakdown.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. I think that's it for now. I am going to go spend the rest of my day doubting myself, doubting the contents of my brain, and uh, I am then going to doubt my decision to doubt And when that is done, I'm going to doubt my decision to doubt my decision, if you know what I mean. Please remember that T.S. Eliot missed military service in World War I due to a hernia and that William Faulkner's middle name was Cuthbert. Thanks uh, for listening. As always, I'll be back on Wednesday with another show, just a couple of days. Uh, In the meantime, be sure to subscribe for free at iTunes. You can subscribe to this program for free at iTunes if you haven't done that yet. If you're a Stitcher person, you can subscribe for free there. Uh, And better yet, you can get the free official app, the Other People app. Please do that. You're missing out if you don't do that. Your life is not complete until you get the Other People app for uh, your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod Touch, your Android device, whatever you have. The app is free, so please acquire it. Uh, Okay, I'm going to leave now. I'm going to go away. I'm uh, going to go look for my voice. I, I feel like I need to find my voice. I need to locate it. Where is it? Uh, my true voice, the voice that will speak to multitudes, the voice that will resonate through the ages, unencumbered by the burden of needless doubt, the voice that will know when to shut the fuck up. (laughs) 